All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Guru. All glories to Sri Prabhupada and Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Bhaktivedanta Manor, London, England, and we were asked to give a two-part seminar on the Bhagavatam. So what we're going to do is today, it's part one, tomorrow's part two, today we're going to look at the value of the Bhagavatam, and so today we're going to look at the what, and tomorrow we're going to look at the how. So today is the value, and then tomorrow is how do you get that value. Today, what is the treasure? Tomorrow, how do you find it? Is that right? Is that okay? Yes. Okay. So, the verse that we're going to, invocation verse we're going to use, is this glorification of the Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 3, Text 43. Krishna Swadharma Pagate Dharma Jnana Divisaha Kalonastadrasham Mesha Puranarko Dunodita
Persons who have lost their sight. Aishaha, all these. Purana Arkaha, the Purana which is brilliant like the sun. Aduna, just now. Uditaha, has arisen. Translation by Srila Prabhupada. This Bhagavata Purana is as brilliant as the sun. And it has arisen just after the departure of Lord Krishna to his own abode, accompanied by religion, knowledge, etc. Persons who have lost their vision due to the dense darkness of ignorance in the age of Kali shall get light from this Purana. What do we find in the Bhagavatam? You could say, the first thing, the most obvious answer, is that we find philosophy. We find answers to the real questions of life. And those answers cannot be found, as far as I know, this thoroughly anyplace else. If you read the other scriptures of the world, you will not get the kind of detailed answers as you will find in the Bhagavatam. So other scriptures may tell you God is great, God is the creator, gives you a list of rules on how to live in the world, don't wear this kind of clothes, don't eat this kind of food, don't do this, do this, and don't do this. But what philosophy does the Bhagavatam give us? The philosophy gives us the Bhagavatam, goes from past the Bhagavad Gita, the nature of the soul, the movements of the living entity, how we're moving from one body to another, how we get our different karma, how we get entangled in this world, the forest of material enjoyment, how the whole world is moving, movements of time according to the atom, how all the planets are moving, how everything was created in detail. Again, other scriptures may just say, God said, let there be light, and then there was water, and then there was sky, and then there was earth, and in about four or five verses, they're finished with the creation. Whereas we have chapter after chapter going into detail how the Lord expands in the different purushas and breathes out the universes, how the different elements combine together. If you were to have the misfortune, as I did, of having to take a graduate level course on the philosophy of research, and you find out uh, how people try to guess at what is the process by which the living entity perceives things? How do we see? How do we hear? Is anything real? Does it exist only as perceptions in the mind? What's the relationship between the self, the mind, the senses, and the sense objects? And they can't figure it out at all. They have this speculation and that. When I took that course, I said, oh, that's mental speculation. That's what Prabhupada means by mental speculation. 
I just sat in the back and read songs. But anyway, so they're trying to guess these things, and this is all in the second and third canto of the Bhagavatam. What is the relationship between the soul, the mind, the senses, the sense objects? How do we interact with the world? And of course, then the philosophy of the ultimate reality, Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavaniti, Sajjate, the different manifestations of the absolute. Most religions and philosophy only know Brahman or maybe Brahman and Paramatma. The all-pervading, or God is the creator, God is the father, the maintainer, he who gives out the material energy, the witness, the friend, the abode, like that. And they don't go beyond that. Uh, very unusual to get information of Bhagavan. And if you go to other Vedic scriptures which does give this information, then those other scriptures are also full of karma and jnana and dhyan. They're mixed. They're saying, yes, okay, there's Bhagavan, but worship him to go to Swarga. Or the ultimate goal, yes, there's Bhagavan, but the ultimate goal is merging with the Brahman, or the ultimate goal is mystic cities, or something like that. So, Kaitiva Dharma, this cheating religion, is thrown out of the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam tells us about it. The Bhagavatam gives us instances of persons who wanted to go to heaven, or persons who wanted to merge with the Brahman, and shows us how all of this is cheating religion, and only prema is the highest truth. So if one wants to understand, if one wants knowledge, if one wants to understand the truth, that should be the most basic criteria to be a religion. You know, nowadays, uh, religion is defined as anything which answers ultimate questions of life and has symbols and a process for trying to achieve it. That's kind of like saying food is anything you put in your mouth. You can put all kinds of things in your mouth without food. The definition of food should be that which nourishes you. Yeah. Right. So the real definition of religion should be that which satisfies you. The Dharma that gives you satisfaction. That when you experience it, it brings you happiness. So the Bhagavatam also is not just philosophy. You can imagine 12 cantos of philosophy. Who would read it? A few people. And the Bhagavatam is not just philosophy. All the philosophy is in the context of What's the philosophy packaged in? Stories. The whole Bhagavatam is a big story. There's all the sages at Namasharanya getting blackened by the smoke and not getting anywhere. And they go to Sutta Goswami and there's Ramaharshan Sutta who gets killed with the Kusha straw. And then, I mean, what stories? And then inside that story, there's Maharaj Brickett. Somehow gets angry when he gets thirsty and puts the dead snake around the sage's neck and then gets cursed to die by a snake bird. Sounds like a dragon. 
seven days, goes to the Ganga, and then inside that story, there's so many other stories. Kardama Muni and Devahuti who have a flying city. The demons and the demigods who fight on red-faced monkeys and black-faced monkeys and deformed human beings and vultures and fish. There's so many amazing stories. It's not just philosophy. It's not just, okay, this happened, this, this, not like that. Every single verse of the Bhagavatam is inside of a story. And it's in, most of them are inside of a story that's inside of a story that's inside of a story that's inside of a story, which psychologists say is the kind of stories that human beings like the most. Stories within stories. And we're wired to like stories because Krishna likes stories. Because that's what he does. Stories. All the time. Lila, he's doing stories. Stories means, if you can remember way back when, when you were in school, there's an introduction, a rising action, a crisis, a falling action, and a conclusion. You all remember that? Or did you just write that on the exam and then forget about it? So, to be a story, there has to be some suspense. You meet the characters, and there's some problem, and there's suspense, and you don't know what's going to happen, and is this going to happen, or is that going to happen, and there's some kind of crisis, or some kind of climax, or some kind of problem. How are we going to solve the problem? And then there's a decision made, and then there's the results of that decision, and then there's everything tied up at the end in a nice little conclusion. Right? So the first you meet Ambarish, the great king, Savaimana Krishna Padara Mindayo, and he's, he's following a codice, and you set the stage, and then you have this Durvasa comes, and he goes, and you have this rising action, and then there's this crisis where he creates this demon to kill Ambarish. And what's going to happen? And he's chased all over the universe by the Sudarshan chakra. Finally, he comes and apologizes, and then at the conclusion, Ambarish and Devasa become friends. So there's story after story like that, and we are designed as souls to relish such stories. Krishna has such stories himself in Goloka Vrindavan, over and over and over again. He's in the stories, and he likes hearing about the stories. You know, every night there's dramas of stories in Goloka Vrindavan. You know that, right? There's entertainment in Goloka Vrindavan. And then before Krishna goes to bed, Madhya Soda tells him a story, and she says, one time, Krishna, there was this little boy named Prahlad, and she tells him a story. So we also like stories. Stories are the most powerful means for changing one's values. There's a whole science behind that, which I don't have time to tell right now. But people's values, their character, culture, are formed more through stories than practically any other way. Therefore, every society has transmitted its culture and its values through stories. If you think about how is the modern secular, you know what secular means? Modern secular culture? So secular means no God. That you do not, it's the opposite of chakra shastra chakshus. It's the opposite of shastra chakshus, just like in this verse. 
we have nastudisham, they don't have any vision. So secular is nastudisham, instead of shastrachakshus. Instead of having the vision of seeing things through the philosophy of theology, you see everything materially. That's what secular means. All the explanations for everything is absent theology. Does that make sense? If you read a newspaper or a magazine, or watch the news on television or like that, will they explain the day's events through religion and philosophy? No, they'll explain. Or you go to school, they'll explain it all through materialism. And life is just materialistic. That's secular. When we were producing our children's books, we looked at dozens and dozens of different reading schemes, and the thing that jumps out at you the most is that there was no God, there was no religion, even if they wanted to be very multicultural and show people having different festivals, God was absent from the festivals. So here's an Indian family celebrating Diwali, but there's no Ram, there's just lights. <laughs> So this is secular. Secular also means individuals will interpret their life sans religion. When people understand, why did I get sick? Why is this happening? What is, what is, what is my purpose in life? They know they don't use Shastra Chakshus. They don't use a lens of religion. That's what secular means. And secularism has two branches. One called positivism, one called post-positivism, or modernism and post-modernism, which have nothing to do with time, by the way. And positivism means there is an objective truth that you can understand through your senses and logic. That's what we call scientific method. And post-positivism is there's absolutely no absolute truth, which you can think about that for a little bit. There's absolutely no absolute truth. Whatever anybody decides is truth for them is truth for them. So these are the two brands of secularism that are circling the globe. You've read into these, I assume, yes? One of them is there's an objective, absolute truth that's material, and you can only understand it through material means. That's what we call the hard sciences. And the other is there's absolutely no absolute objective truth, which is, of course, an absolute statement of objective truth. And uh, everybody just finds their own truth. Everybody can find their own meaning, and everyone's truth and everyone's meaning is equally true or equally untrue, I suppose. So how have these ideas spread all over the world? Through somebody arguing them logically through philosophy? No, through stories. And how were the stories transmitted? You all have the answer to through the media, yes? Yes? How is it that even in very religious societies, most people have now become secular? Because they watch television, movies. What are they, what are they watching? Philosophy? Are they watching philosophy? When they turn on the television, there's some deep philosophical discussion of whether the absolute truth is material or spiritual. No, they're just watching stories. Hmm? And these stories change people's values. Again, that would be at least 20 minutes to describe why and how stories have that effect. So the Bhagavatam is full of stories. It's stories and stories and stories and stories within stories. Therefore, it's very captivating. 
And of course, there's personalities in those stories. And when one reads the Bhagavatam, because the Bhagavatam is not an ordinary book, one's actually associating with those personalities. Frankly, even in ordinary stories, even ordinary stories about fictional characters, one is associating with those personalities. Or maybe I should tell it. I'll try to tell it very briefly. Can't resist. I'm sorry. So I'm sure you're aware that athletes sometimes before they're when, before they perform when they're practicing, they sometimes practice their sport mentally. Are you aware of that? So they may just sit down and they're not moving and they're just mentally hitting the ball. You're aware of this? This is one way that athletes practice. And research has shown that when you mentally go through an action, that your brain and your muscles are activated two-thirds of the extent as when you're doing it physically. I mean, you can try this yourself if you're learning a new skill. If you practice it mentally, when you go to do it physically, it'll be easier. It'll be as if you also practiced it physically. So a similar thing happens with stories. When we hear, read, or see stories, what happens is we almost become the characters in the story, and we live through those characters and experience what they're experiencing, almost the same as if we were literally experiencing it. I'm sure if you've read a book or watched a film, you've noticed that you get emotions of the characters, you get even a physiological reaction. If somebody's watching a scary movie, they'll perspire and so forth. Yes? Why? Because what's happening, and they can, they can do this with brain scans. If the character in the story picks up a piece of cloth, in your brain, you're picking up a piece of cloth. So whatever stories we hear, we're practicing that behavior. This is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one reason why stories are very powerful at changing people's behavior and changing people's values and why we're enjoined not to meditate on stories of materialistic persons. So this is true even on a material level. But Bhagavatam is also acting on a spiritual level. So even on a material level, when we're reading the stories of these personalities, we're reading about Ambarish, and we're reading about Kardama, and we're reading about Vidura, we're practicing following in the footsteps of those people on a subtle level. And because the Bhagavatam is spiritual, those personalities are actually present in the stories. So we are getting their association on every level. And we all know that we tend to become like our association. I was speaking a while ago to one devotee who's lapsed in her practices. And we were talking about how she could try to do things that were more spiritual. And I asked her, what do you like in Krishna consciousness? So she was telling me. And then she said, but maybe I should also tell you what I like that's not Krishna conscious. I said, okay. So she was telling me that. And then she said, now this isn't exactly something that I like, but I want to be normal. I said, well, what do you mean exactly? She said, well, when I'm with people at my work, I don't want them to think that I'm strange. 
So this is again our natural tendency, that we want to be like the people with whom we associate. We're social beings. And when we're reading the stories of the Bhagavatam, we are literally associating with those personalities. And therefore, our natural inclination, it's a spiritual inclination, because the spiritual world is full of living entities, our natural spiritual inclination to be part of a group and be accepted by that group will then operate and will think, well, I'd like to be accepted by Devahuti. I'd like to be accepted by Vidura. I'd like to act in such a way that they look at me and say, you're normal. I want to be normal to them. But now, we not only have the Bhagavatam itself, the philosophy in the Bhagavatam, the stories of the Bhagavatam, the personalities of the Bhagavatam, but what else do we have? We don't just have the verses, we also have the purports. And Prabhupada said these purports are his ecstasies. So, you know, Rupa Goswami says that even a materialistic person in association with a great devotee can experience shadow or reflective ecstasy. That means just by reading the purports, we can get a shadow or a reflection of Srila Prabhupada's ecstasies. And Srila Prabhupada says in the Nectar Devotion, that one can go from that shadow or reflective ecstasy immediately to real ecstasy. So we're in touch not only with Srila Prabhupada's vision and Prabhupada's preaching, but Prabhupada's mood. And of course in the purports we're getting Srila Prabhupada's vision of how to understand and apply the verses of the Bhagavatam to our present time. Prabhupada says it's required not only to keep the principles, but to apply them to time, place, and circumstance. And Prabhupada's doing that for us in the purports. So we can pick up on Srila Prabhupada's mood, Srila Prabhupada's ecstasy, and then we can also learn practically, okay, what do I do with this verse? What do, I, what do I do with what the Bhagavatam is saying here? You know, here's Kardama building a flying city. I can't do that. Anybody here can build flying cities? You're just not revealing your mystic power yet to anybody. So, you know, what do I do with that? And I've never seen wars where people are riding on red-faced monkeys and Timagila fish and... Right? Or... Kasyapa's wives who give birth to snakes and birds and lions. And... So I've helped deliver a lot of babies, but none of them were lions. <laughs> and it was with a devotee lady, and whoop, what's that? <laughs> so how do you apply this to, to our life? What do you do with it? And Srila Prabhupada's taking in the purport from these stories and these personalities to right now. To call you to right now, even to the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And of course, Srila Prabhupada's purports, what do they have within them? Commentaries of the previous acharyas. 
So when we're reading Srila Prabhupada's purports, we're not only associating with Srila Prabhupada, we're associating with Bhakti Sanatya Saraswati and Bhakti Vinodakura and Jiva Goswami and Sridhar Swami and Sanatana Goswami and their moods and their ecstasies and their revelations about how to apply the philosophy in one's own life. So it's not just some philosophy up there. Oh, what a nice philosophy. But it comes right to our lives. So I'm sure there's a lot more in the Bhagavatam, but those were the main things that came to mind. Philosophy stories, personalities, Prabhupada's ecstasies, realization, application, purports, and the previous acharyas, ecstasies, revelations, and applications in the purports. All right. Sounds like a nice party to go to, huh? <laughs> so you get there, there you are in the Bhagavatam. What's going to happen to you? Might be a good thing to know, huh? What's going to happen? I don't know if we should, if we should reveal this, though, because everybody might run away. So, sometimes I'm, I'm a little hesitant, especially when I'm giving a class to people very new to Krishna consciousness, to tell them what's actually going to happen when they take up Krishna consciousness. Nobody told me what was really going to happen. So should I tell you? I just discovered, I mean, just, 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 because I prepared this a while ago, but just when I sat down here, I discovered something in my notes that I went, oh my God. Somehow or other, I put the power of the Bhagavatam, I'd gotten four things, and I put them in an order that ends up being the order of the progression of bhakti. And I didn't intend to do that. I didn't even know I did that. So we'll just go with it. I love when things like that happen. So the first thing that we're going to look at is that Bhagavatam cleanses the heart. Shrimpatam Swakatam Krishna Punishavan Kirtana Rijatasa Bhadrani Vidyunoti Suritsada. So if we look at the word for word, Shrimpatam. And Prabhupada translates this as those who have developed the urge to hear the message of, the desire, not just your hearing. Recently I was in a temple, and in my first seminar, I asked people, so why have you come? What do you hope to get out of this seminar? And one of the members of the audience says, I'm here because they tell me I have to go if I want to get fed. (laughs) (laughs) So one should have some urge to hear the Bhagavatam. One should have some excitement, and not just this is something I've got to do every day. And then, Rityantasta, Rit means the heart, Anta within, Sta, the place within the heart. And then, Abhadrani, Bhadra means auspicious. Abhadrani, which is not auspicious, Prabhupada says, the desire to enjoy matter. Then, Surit, Surit, Rit means heart, Su means very dear, very auspicious, very good, very beautiful. So, one who's very dear to the heart. We're lucky if we have a few friends like that in this world. And we all have friends, people we say hard go to and think, what was that? And, and other people that we see sometimes and work with. But we have a few students, right? Maybe have only one, maybe two or three. People who really are dear to your heart, they really care. 
You know, when you leave your body, they won't just think, oh, great, feast. (laughs) They're they're concerned about what you do. If you tell them what you did today, they they want to listen at least for five or ten minutes. And they see your bad qualities, and they don't think you're a demon, and they see your good qualities, and they don't think you're a saint. They just see you for who you are, and they deal with you as who you are, and they like you for who you are. So that's surit. And then take that person, if you can think about that person in your life, hopefully all of you have this one, I hope, and multiply that by a few billion times. So that's Krishna, who thoroughly knows us. None of our surits in this life thoroughly know us, 100%. But Krishna completely thoroughly knows us, and he loves us, he hangs around with us, even if we become a cockroach. You know that story by Franz Kafka, Metamorphosis, where family comes to wake up their family member and he's become a big cockroach. So even our surid jivas, if we became a big cockroach, they probably wouldn't like us anymore. But Krishna, right? He's Whatever yantra we're in, Krishna is still our best friend. So this surid, this best friend, does this cleansing vidyunoti satam of those who are truthful. Prabhupada translates it, Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead, who is the super soul in everyone's heart, and the benefactor of the truthful devotee, cleanses desire for material enjoyment from the heart of the devotee who has developed the urge to hear his messages which are in themselves virtuous when properly heard and chanted. So how does this cleansing take place? This cleansing takes place that as you hear about Krishna, he gets very pleased, he gets very excited, he manifests himself in the heart, Krishna is full of light, and the heart gets lit up. And then if one is truthful, and one wants to know the truth, then one will see one's material desires. One will see, Prabhupada said, the naked form of material desires. We'll discuss this a little bit more tomorrow, how to hear. Tomorrow we'll talk about how to hear and how to preach. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. How. But the material desires become cleansed. Now again, this may sound very nice, but the process of the cleansing is not very nice for a materially attached soul. Now, again, nobody told me this when I joined the Hare Krishna movement. So, I'm, I'm sure most of you here already know this, but for those who don't, I'm going to give you fair warning. Truth in advertising. So if you're attached to something, being cleansed of it will be experienced initially as painful. If you're attached to something, being cleansed of it will be experienced initially as painful. Because if Bhagavatam will show us our attachments in their naked form. I always give the example of a person who has uh, an exotic animal as a pet. Someone has a tiger as a pet, or a python as a pet, and they think, this is a pet. It loves me. I love it. It is the source of affection for me. 
and then one day their pet eats them. And if you go to such persons and say, my dear sir, you are living with a python. He says, oh yeah, I know. But he doesn't know. So the Bhagavatam takes our material attachments and says, this is what they really are. And when you're attached to something that's horrible and disgusting and dangerous and selfish and greedy and exploitive and cruel and you think it's very nice, seeing it for what it is, is painful. Now the pain is due to our pride. There's definitely some pain involved. Therefore, there's some humility. Therefore, the devotees will say, oh, I'm so fallen. So the Bhagavatam will do that. The Bhagavatam will say, hey, you're living like a hog, dog, camel, or ass. That, that's, that's heavy. All you're doing is eating, sleeping, bathing, and defending. You're not better than an animal. That was a great harsh, heavy statements. Your life is useless. You can be a pious person doing so many wonderful things in the world, but if you haven't attained transcendence, it's all useless. And that's heavy. And it's hard. Because we're thinking, oh, I, I'm great, and I'm doing wonderful things, and my life is full of meaning. And Bhagavatam says, no, it's not. It's empty. It just looks real. You say, oh, my life is full of pleasure. And Bhagavatam says, no, it's not. It's a forest of material enjoyment, full of hooting owls, which are your enemies that behind your back are saying, mountains that you're climbing and caves you're falling into and tigers that are going to eat you and elephants that are going to stample you and witches that are going to suck your blood and thieves and, and all these parts of your life that you think oh they're wonderful these are my family members these are my friends these are my meaningful activities in the world I am an important person I am a good person I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I'm selfless. Bhagavatam says, no, you're not. You're greedy, lusty, envious, selfish, exploitive, contaminated dog who's suffering one after another with people who look like your friends and look like your family members, but actually they're just witches and jackals and thieves. And people run away. So, a lot of people can't get past the showers. Again, we'll discuss, we'll discuss this a little more tomorrow. They don't realize that when you take a shower, you feel really good afterwards. That it may be a little painful to see how dirty you are, but then you figure out you need a shower, and then when you take a shower, you feel so good. As soon as, they, as soon as they just see, ah, look at me, oh my God, and then they turn around and run away. So you see many people, they just get to this cleansing process and they're not willing to be satam, they're not willing to be truthful. 
And so they turn around and run away. Or some of them stay and just become mechanical. So some people stay and just go on with mechanical service, which of course you can't keep up for too long, but you'll keep that probably for a few lifetimes. And some people run away. So then after one is cleansed, then what is the next stage? This is from the purport of 285. Prabhupada says, by sincere efforts to hear Srimad Bhagavatam, one realizes his constitutional relationship with the Lord in the transcendental humor of servitude, friendship, fraternal affection, or conjugal love. And by such self-realization, one becomes situated at once in the transcendental loving service of the Lord. So what happens when you get clean? You see, oh, there was something nice under all that dirt. It wasn't just dirt. The dirt wasn't the real me, Chaito Darpana Marjana. The Bhagavatam's also revealing what we are. The Bhagavatam's revealing that when a Jamyo realizes how dirty and contaminated he is, then he comes to who he is. He sees this, gets his spiritual form, and he gets his relationship with the Lord. One starts to see, I'm, I'm a part of God, and not just I'm a part of God in a, in a vague way, but one starts to experience, oh, I have feelings for the Lord as my friend, or as my, my son, or as my lover. And the real spiritual feelings start to awaken. Then one finds that there are real friends, and there are real family, and there are real meaningful activities, and there is a form that's actually kind and compassionate and truthful and wonderful, and I really am that. And then one starts to engage in bhakti on a different platform, on a platform of increasing one's attachment, on a platform of developing one's relationship, on a platform of meditating on the Lord in the context of that relationship. And the Bhagavatam gives you the keys to do that. So like Prabhupada writes in the third chapter of the tenth canto, that one who's gotten feelings for the Lord as their child meditates on loving soda, how she's churning butter and she's perspiring and the flowers are falling from her hair. So the Bhagavatam gives us the means for meditation and entrance into who we really are. And when one meditates on that, when one starts meditating on Krishna in one's awakened feelings, then the next thing, one will come to see Krishna directly. This is from the purport of 1344. One can certainly see directly the presence of Lord Sri Krishna in the pages of the Bhagavatam. So after one has gone through the shower and one's real feelings have awakened, then when one starts reading the Bhagavatam, oh, there's Krishna. We were saying even a materialistic person, when they read a materialistic story, they experience that they're with the characters in that story. But here Krishna's actually there. And Prabhupada says one will see Krishna directly. Finally, one will see Krishna face to face. That was just like we're seeing each other. And what will be the result of that? So from the purport to 10, 12, 7, 11. Prabhupada says, if one adheres to these two books, Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam, 
when assured to obtain the association of Krishna in the next life. Talk today, Hampunyarjama, Naiti Malagati So This is what the Bhagavatam can give us. It gives us freedom from the chains. It takes off the chains. It takes off the illusion. It clears the eyes. It clears off the dust. It shows us the reality. It shows us the the actual nature of illusion, so we let it go. And that doesn't bring us to nothingness. It brings us to reality. It awakens our real self. Then we start doing activities on the basis of the real self, which allow us to see Krishna in the Bhagavatam. And by seeing Krishna in the Bhagavatam, then just like, and Prabhupada explains this very nicely in the 8th chapter of Majulila, that just like in conditioned life, we get a particular body according to our meditation and activities. So spiritually, according to our meditation and activities, we develop our spiritual body and get to be with Krishna eternally. So that is what the Bhagavatam gives us. Cleansing, revelation of our real story, cleansing the the illusion and the unreal, revealing the real me, revealing God, and bringing Ami into his association. So how do we get that from the Bhagavatam? One may say, well, I've been reading the Bhagavatam for a long time, and I haven't seen all that. So that we will do, Krishna tomorrow. How to read the Bhagavatam so as to access these jewels, and how to teach the Bhagavatam so as to access these jewels. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements? Yes? There's only one word I choose to describe what you've said. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Bhagavatam is wonderful. Uh, what I want to ask you, well, I have many questions, but because time is short, just confine myself to just one question. You see, in the Western context, philosophy developed from three questions that were being asked by people like Pliny, uh, Ptolemy, Euclid, and people like that. Three questions were, who am I? What am I doing here? And if there is someone called God, what is my relationship with him? But unfortunately, it has been corrupted through the years. So much so that in the last century, the greatest Western philosopher was a guy called Weisenstein. Unfortunately, before he died, somebody asked him, what do you think of philosophy? Of course, they don't mention Eastern philosophy. Mm. It is nothing to do with any civilized philosophy, so to speak. So he said, we have solved, listen carefully, this is very interesting, we have solved all the problems of philosophy. And now, remember, he was the, the most preeminent philosopher of the 20th century. And the question that we need to ask ourselves now is simply, how did language develop? <laughs> that's, his, that's his overriding, urgent question in life, how did language develop? That's right, yes. Isn't that what you all wake up in the morning worrying about? So as you wake up in the morning saying, how did language develop? <laughs> <laughs> that's your overriding question throughout the day. Actually, you can say the corruption of... Uh, philosophy in this way, because uh, just before the uh, Iraq war started, the latest one, 
President Bush, bless his soul, not very bright, he approached the Yale University Philosophy Department, asking them, can you find a reason for invading Iraq? So that is what it has come to. My question is, uh, presumably the same thing has happened to Vedic philosophy. So what I like to know is, given this definition of Western philosophy, how it evolved, what is the parallel in Vedic philosophy? The parallel in Vedic I mean definition. Is there a definition? And if so, what is it? And was there a definition of philosophy? In Vedic system, yes. I'm not the right person to answer that question. That's probably a question for Gopi Acharya. Maybe Krishna Kshetra Prabhu. Vinayananda Marsh. I'm the wrong person. I doubt it, but anyway. Has it been secularized to the extent that you go to a philosophy department at the University of Calcutta, for instance? Well, you really have to ask for or, or, or Radhika Raman, because uh-huh. I haven't studied. It's not my field. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I'm an academic, but that's, but it's not my field. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, as people who've been out there, although I'm a philosophy doctor, my my field is in education and leadership. Right. And I've also studied sociology, but I haven't studied philosophy, so I don't know like they have to uh, need to ask that. Okay, we have people like that, okay. but Thank I'm you. not one of them. Thank you very much. Thank you for my question. You've been working on um, with this whole shared rate tomorrow? Yeah, I did in my tour. Can you briefly how is that a Krishna conscious story? How is that a Krishna conscious story? Oh, that's also a story. Oh, what is his name? The person in Ecclesiastes is also a person. He's a king. And he's talking also about his life. No, well, it's attributed to Solomon, but the word used for him was different. I can't remember. I went to the whole book when I was in my book. Yeah, what is it? Yeah. But he's telling his life and he talks about how he amassed wealth and wives and this and that. So it's, it's also within a story. It's not just wealth. I mean, it's not a very coherent story. There's, there's more little bits and pieces of it here and there. And then also he tells stories of, of kings who become great and then go into dust and that kind of thing. Mother, thank you for that last class. Um, just something I just try to understand. How how is Srimad Bhagavatam for someone who's truthful and at the same time is telling you how you're untruthful? Could you just How is Bhagavatam for someone who's truthful when it's telling you how you're untruthful? Uh-huh. Very nice question. You have to be truthful to see how you're untruthful. We have the word justification. Justification means you're lying to yourself. So all conditioned souls are lying to themselves. The primary, you know, we have our cheating propensity. The primary person we're cheating is ourself. So to be willing to see the truth. Not just willing, but an eagerness to see the truth, even if it's going to cost you. Which which it will. So Bhagavatam is for people who are willing to pay the price of seeing the truth. Even though some of what you're going to see is not going to be 
flattering, to put it mildly. Yes, ma'am. It's just um, uh, hard to digest the way that you presented the, the contaminated, sort of poisonous nature of ourselves in a very descriptive way. I'm thinking that if a brahmachari or a sannyasi says that in those words, it can often be interpreted in the audience that oh, it's just a fanatical, pent-up uh, man, you know? So... Yes, one of that's something, something that I've found that I can do in, in a woman's body. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> When she's so gentle and sweet, everybody thinks that's how she always is, but there's... Gentle and sweet are not usually words used to describe But the mother always has this coarse harshness when she needs it, and it cuts right through um, in the house, in the relationship. And they were delivering it in such a way, and I was just struck by it, that's all. Oh, thank you. <laughs> For a long time, for a long time, I used to really feel that there was no benefit to the particular body that I have, <laughs> uh, spiritually. Yeah, for a long time, I felt that way. I was, I was very thoroughly indoctrinated in the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> and I really got the scrapings at the bottom of the barrel to be, a, you know, American now. Western, and not only Western, but American. How can you get worse than that? Yeah. Woman. Yeah. There's two people who say that in the Hare Krishna movement. Hare Krishna. And it was, it was actually classed by Bhakti Chiruswami in a game in Soho some years ago, where I thought, oh, there's actually something I can do with it. But I have discovered that being in a woman's body and having been in the Grahasta Ashram for 23 years, and Having a family of devotees who are nice people, I don't hate my family. That I can say those things without people having that reaction. Um, so I do. Yes. And you always hear that some 90% or something like that of our spiritual progress um, purification comes from chanting. Um, I'm just wondering if you can say something about the balance. Do you want to show me the quote for that? Somewhere in the CC. Somewhere in the CC. Find a quote for But just a lot of our spiritual progress comes from chanting the holy name. And I'm just wondering if you could say something about the balance between, you know, that cleansing through purity. Um, well, I found it really interesting, interesting actually, in, in that regard. What the balance should be. Because this quote that I found, that I read, because I'm going through the Bhagavatam again. Right now I'm on three three. So I read this just recently because it's two eight five. And when I read this by sincere efforts to hear Srimadbhagavatam one realizes its constitutional relationship with the Lord in the transcendental humor of servitude, friendship, parental affection, or conjugal love, and by such self-realization one becomes situated once in the transcendental loving service of the Lord. I said, Wow. Because we always preach that that happens only by chanting. That's like our Generally, our preaching in the Hare Krishna movement is the way you're going to realize your swarup is by chanting. The way you're going to realize your swarup is by chanting. Your brother says you're going to realize your swarup by the bottom of the 
So my answer is that really, and I don't have the quote handy, although I can find it for you, where Prabhupada says that the nine processes in one, in one way of understanding, they're all one. There's not really a difference. And you know how many times that it said that by any one of those processes. So that's a fact. By any one of those processes. Just by becoming the friend of the Lord. Just by surrendering everything to the Lord. Just by serving. Just by praying. Just by offering obeisances. And then every devotion is full of accounts like that. If you just one time take the charnam with them, yes, things like that. You just one time see the Rati Aptikot. And Prabhupada notes that these statements are not exaggerations, they're true. He said, but they don't, they're not true for everybody. It depends on, on your particular circumstances, but the potency is there. So I don't know if any of you know Prana from, from Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So, he was once leading a very animated discussion on what's the most important process, hearing or chanting. Because you can find a lot of evidence on either. You can find a lot of evidence where Prabhupada say hearing is the most important, hearing is the most important. Hearing. And a lot of people say, you know, all the instructions of the spiritual master, the instructions to send 16 rounds is the most important. Hearing is the main process. You have that nice sound up, sign up that says nasty, nasty, nasty. <laughs> You might want to think about how things appear to Westerners, by the way. A little thought. <laughs> I walk in as a Britisher and I've never been to Hard Christian Temple before. Who's this Ava who's really nasty? <laughs> nasty Ava, nasty. Oh, she must be really nasty. So, you know, we, we say this, that this holy chanting, the holy name is the only you know, process. Anyway, as far as a balance, so Prabhupada gave us a balanced program. Our money program is a balanced program. It contains so many of the elements of the nine processes of devotional service. We could probably analyze, which I've never done before, so I don't know if I could do it off the cuff. We could probably analyze how from 4.30 to nine, you had all nine processes. My guess is that you'd be able to do that. And that they're all there in some form. And then over and above the basic that we're all supposed to do, Prabhupada says frequently that one should perform the activities of bhakti according to one's personal taste. So frankly, some people, other than the basic program, are going to be more absorbed in Arjuna. Some people more absorbed in Kirtana. Some people more absorbed in Smaranam, some people more absorbed in Smaranam, some people more absorbed in Sakyam, some people more absorbed in Atmanivedanam. And that's... We're allowed to be individuals because we are individuals. At the same time, the essence of our process in the Kali Yuga is chanting. So those are, those are all true. I hope that's a good enough non-answer answer for you. Yes. There's something Prabhupada said in the lecture right, that the, the, about the nine processes. The first thing is Bhagavad Gita, the morning and the last, the six is Pancharashrika. Oh, yeah. Let's not talk about that now. Okay. He also talks about how the first three are writing the Bhakti and the last ones are writing Bhakti. Let's, let's not go there right now. Yes. I just wonder, since the class that you're going to hear tomorrow is the 
advice that you will give to us for one who has found himself not so clean and who doesn't want to escape and also don't want to stay in the country? Well, hopefully, hopefully we did that today. So hopefully today was, I want it. That the whole idea today was, I want it, and then how. So if you don't want it after today, you're not going to be very interested in how to get it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, this was, this was the, today was what it is, and then tomorrow is how to get it. So if it didn't work today, for the, if it didn't, if you didn't get some inclination today, then I don't know if you're going to find tomorrow that interesting. Because why would you be interested in how to get something that you don't want? <laughs> you want? Okay. Then hopefully you'll find it interesting. Okay, we're running out of time here. Anybody else? Yes. Last one. What? I'm sorry? I heard one time from your one of your lectures you need to look everything as a shot. Yes, Vati Sanatis Saraswati says that in his purport to Brahma Samhita, text 61. So when you say that morning everything is a mercy, so that's the meaning of it or Yes. Everything. Everything. Yes. Because he's to read. Sometimes I think it's that bad. You create things? Not create, but my, maybe my mentality, you know, my, you know, where I can see things, everything is absolutely Krishna. Everything is Krishna, but can I give all the responsibility to him? No, it's not that you give him all the responsibility. <laughs> mercy and kindness of the Lord. So I was just reading that. Where Prabhupada writes that Krishna punishes the demons with regret. I'm not getting the words exactly right. This is in the third canto in the chapter of Krishna's pastimes out of the dog that I can't remember the exact verse. Where Prabhupada says that Krishna punishes the demons out of regret because they're his parts and parcels. He doesn't want them to suffer. But everything he does for everybody is good. So some of the things that Krishna is are doing to us or for us are results of our foolishness. But everything, every way in which Krishna responds to us is for our good. Now if you're not a devotee, it's going to be real ultimate kind of good. And if you're a devotee, it's when you're very immediate. Is that okay? No. If, if someone steals something from a store, at least theoretically, we put them in prison for their good. And perhaps not really, but at least the, the theory is like that, isn't it? that the, the purpose of putting the thief in jail is for their own good and their own gratification. Again, that, and that may not actually happen. Putting them in prison may be a harmful thing for them. But that's the idea. So everything that Krishna does, every way that he responds, every way that he responds is for the benefit. Krishna never does anything that's not for the benefit of the living entity. 
and we can't independently create anything. I can't independently create the reactions to my activities. I can't even independently create my activities. I can't even independently do anything. I'm only one of the five factors of action. If I want to lift my hand and Krishna says, no, I won't go up. I'm not independent. So my ability to do things, even sinful things, even terrible things, even horrific things, are the mercy of Krishna. And the response I get to what I do, even if that response is painful and horrible, is also the mercy of Krishna. And if we start seeing things that way, then maybe you want to work in harmony with him. And maybe you want to get his mercy in a way that will bring you to, to, to transcendence. Is that okay? Thank you very much. I'll please to